0: Uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, I'm Jay Wallace, uh, Vice Chair of the, uh, the Berkeley uh, Tanner Lectures Committee, and I'm uh, very pleased to be able to welcome you to the third day of this year's um, Tanner Lecture events. Um, uh, by now, everyone's familiar with the cast of um, participants in these uh, very interesting lectures. Uh, we're uh, delighted to have Arthur Ripstein from the University of Toronto as our main Tanner Lecturer. Uh, And we have three uh, distinguished commentators, uh, Chris uh, Coutts from UC Berkeley, Ona Hathaway from uh, Yale Law School, and Jeff McMahon uh, from the University of Oxford. Uh, And what we're going to do today is each of the commentators, in the order I've just um, read their names uh, or or, um, uh, introduced them to you, uh, will present some brief um, comments, a second set of comments on Arthur's Lecture's um, we'll take a brief break. Arthur will be given an opportunity to uh, respond to the new comments that the commentators have offered and then we'll open things up for discussion. Um, my main job today, I anticipate, is going to be to interrupt Arthur um, uh, so that um, we ensure that there's enough time for uh, questions from the audience. Um, and, uh, but I'm, I'm confident in my ability to do that. Um, it may require um, the use of some kind of uh, force, but it, uh, I think it 's consistent with uh, Kantian principles. Um, so without further ado, uh, Chris Kutz, uh, w- would you like to come up and <coughs>
1: Thanks very much. Um, before I start, I just wanted to um, note publicly, just to—I I don't know if Arthur, I ever thanked you uh, for something, a kindness you did very, very early in my career. In fact, before it even got started, you were the reader for Cambridge University Press of the, of I guess my dissertation, which um, you approved as a book with enormously helpful comments, and really everything began there. And I just want you to know—I I've, I've, I think of that all the time. I think of the. I mean, the effort it took and the kindness uh, and the attention you gave that, uh, and I'm, I'm thankful, I'm equally thankful for your suggesting me as a commentator. This is a real honor uh, to be here and to be an interlocutor as you develop these really quite powerful ideas, so thank you. Um, I'd like today to make three different points. The first concerns the force of Arthur's complaint that a category error is at the root of making sense of what goes wrong in in bello violations. The second concerns what seems to be an unstated but implicit and undefended skepticism about international law. Ona will have much more to say about this. So I'm just going to really note it. And the third is, I think, a chance to emphasize what uh, I most appreciate in these lectures, which is Arthur's clear separation of the moral from the political in thinking about war. And I think that's a really valuable and distinctive perspective that uh, uh, you know, I want to make sure that we, we pay attention to collectively. So first... I'm hoping Arthur can expand his remarks from yesterday to say more about what moral or normative force, what he called a categorical or formal argument, is supposed to have. Arthur has rejected many times what he calls empirical arguments and insisted that the only kind of arguments that matter are categorical. I understand for someone who accepts a broadly Kantian analysis of morality and universalization arguments why these are supposed to have force. They're supposed to be demanded by our self-understanding as reasoners. But Arthur has conspicuously not relied on such a framework over these lectures. So I understand what he has written and what he said yesterday. His argument is something like this. Since the only just war is a defensive war against unjust attackers, it can only be permissible to harm unjust attackers. And this is meant to follow definitionally or conceptually, as it were, from the idea of a just war. This makes the restriction that only combatants can be targeted a formal categorical matter but it seems to me puzzling why a definitional assertion should have the force it does. Let me make this concrete. Take a just defender. imagine an Air Force colonel or somebody, who believes he can end a war quickly and achieve a peace by bombing the aggressor's parliament, which voted for the aggressive war. The colonel predicts plausibly that the replacement government will end the invasion. But his general says, you can't do that. That will violate distinction. Commander says to him, You'll be making a category here, error here. These are civilians, far from a trigger, and so not properly part of the war. General says, Fine, I'll commit a category error, but I will win a just war more quickly and at a lower human cost. What more does Arthur have to say to him as a matter of moral or political reasoning? Unless something like Kantian machinery is rolled out, or some independent assertion of the right to life of non aggressing non combatants is, I'm not quite sure what the force is. Take the perspective of an aggressor this time, waging a reparative war, to regain territory lost in a prior war. The aggressor has deliberately killed civilians holding land to refuse to vacate. The aggressor's general is brought up on distinction charges. Arthur's prosecuting and says, As an ad bellum matter, war is only justified as a matter of defense against attack, and therefore only targeting those engaged in an attack can be justified. You thought you were fighting an aggressive war, but in fact you're fighting a defective defensive war, and so you were committing a category error. These civilians weren't attacking you. From a moral point of view, why can't the aggressor answer, I wasn't committing a category or formal error, I was rationally pursuing my war's ends? Arthur would say, Well, since the only war that can be justified is a defensive war, no killing of non combatants can be justified, because they can never be understood as attackers by the law, whatever the subjective view of the fighters. And of course, that's what the law is now, that civilians, because they pose no threat, aren't liable to be killed. But what's puzzling is that Arthur seemed to want to link up this principle to the idea of a future peace and internally to the principle of action by the aggressor. But the peace imagined by the aggressor nation isn't the peace of a just defender. It's a peace based upon forcible change. Now, Arthur seemed to suggest that there's no coherent alternative to the just defender's limited aims in war than any other conception of war makes war a matter of what he called extermination. Jeff mentioned this yesterday. But even for an aggressor state, that seems to me an exaggerated characterization. Saddam Hussein, in invading Kuwait, did not seek the extermination of the people of Kuwait, only to control its oil fields and repair of what he, said, what he thought of as the theft of Iraqi oil. Putin, in launching a covert war on Ukraine, sought the expansion of the Russian state, not an extermination of Ukrainians. George H.W. Bush invading Panama sought only the pliability of an American client and perhaps to stop the flow of cocaine, not extermination of Panamanians. Phrasing the injunction to protect civilians in terms of the need to avoid, formally or empirically, a war of extermination doesn't seem to me plausible. Given those very specific aims, control of oil, territorial rule, political control, it's hard to see, relative to the logic of the aggressors, why they shouldn't use force against civilians who stand in their way oil workers, or politicians. Here's maybe a different way to see this issue. Arthur wants to copy over the restrictions on defenders to aggressors, and he says the logic is the same. If the only just war is against unjust attackers, then non-combatants can't be permissible targets. But for aggressors, just defenders can't be permissible targets either. Soldiers and civilians are both out of bounds. So Arthur's argument doesn't seem to show that there's anything distinctively wrong for unjust aggressors, in attacking civilians, either internal to their own logic or in relation to the logic of the just defender. And so we don't get the independence of the in bello restriction from the ad bellum prohibition that he promised. That is, there's no distinctive wrong, it seems to me, on his theory, or it's hard to see why there is a distinctive wrong in attacking civilians. Now, why does this matter? It matters because Arthur wants to vindicate the structure of the actual law of armed conflict with its regime of symmetrical impunity just and unjust uh, combatants alike, and to underline the special badness of violations of the Yosin Bello. But at most, his argument seems to work for the just defender. I worry that in order to defend the principle of distinction, as I mentioned with the prohibition on perfidy on Tuesday, we're going to want as many conceptual resources as we can find to defend civilian protection. Among those resources are a conception of an individual human right to life, of honor or dignity in combat, of the basic consequentialist goal of less killing over more killing, and relatedly, the the relative incentive effects of punishing the killing of civilians while not punishing the killing of soldiers. Added together, those are considerations internal to the deliberations of an aggressor as well as a defender. And I'm worried that Arthur is giving away those resources when he might want to draw upon them. The second point I wanted to raise concerns what seems to me an unargued skepticism about international law. Now, Arthur says that the most basic reason for the impunity of soldiers who fight aggressive wars but do not violate the in bello laws is that any other regime would involve the subordination of one legal regime to another. This would amount to a kind of victor's justice. Objectionable, not just because victors tend to be poor at administering objective justice, but because as a principled matter, it seems, one state cannot adjudicate the permissions granted by another state to its soldiers— Specifically, one nation, here I'll quote uh, from his paper, does not have the right to preempt another nation's legal order in its oversight of the military. I think you you said that uh, uh, verbatim yesterday as well. Now, I'm not sure I accept this proposition as stated. It seems to me that nations whose laws and procedures protect rights and target grave wrongs do have the right to do just that as a matter of universal jurisdiction. Universal jurisdiction is a pretty standard, standard idea, and it's an accepted, if relatively rare, feature of international law. It's how Spain can charge uh, Pinochet with uh, human rights crimes. I don't think Arthur accepts his own limitation either, or at least I don't see why. If one state can punish the bello crimes of another state's soldiers, it can't punish their ad bellum crimes. There will be fact-intensive and judgment-sensitive questions about both these kinds of violations – And the law in some aspects of in bellow restrictions, especially as related to proportionality or the actually even much more complex issue that Ona uh, adverted to yesterday about who counts as a combatant, um, these questions are not necessarily simpler than the ad bellum law of aggression. Since Arthur thinks there is room for adjudication of in bellow complaints, I don't see why there's not for ad bellum. To be concrete about this, why should we ignore the possibility of international adjudication under a regime like that of the amended Rome Statute, which criminalizes aggressive war with respect to political and military leaders, and in bello violations by line soldiers? We could re-amend the, sta- we could re-amend the statute. It's hard to see as a conceptual matter what would be wrong to expand the jurisdiction for ad bellum more to line soldiers. They could have particular excuses and so on. Such a system would not represent the subordination of one domestic legal system to another domestic legal system, but the integration of all domestic legal systems within an an international order. Even if my imaginary international system cannot impose direct punishment on line soldiers, so long as, say, they stay within domestic territory, could ostracize them or outcast them, an analogy to the state-level system that Ona and Scott Shapiro have described uh, in other writings. Let me be clear, I'm not trying to argue for a system of punishing line soldiers. As a more general matter, I think the context of war is one among many where we can think about illegality without having to link it to individual punishment. Denunciation, demands for apology, justifications for broadly imposed reparative taxes, all these are consequences that can follow from judging that there's been an ad bellum violation and, that they, and they don't need to be isolated to military and political leaders. I also think there are a lot of familiar reasons to maintain the system of combatant privilege, including considerations of reciprocity, fairness, and the incentive effects I mentioned earlier, although I agree with Arthur that we don't really know anything about the empirics of the alternative. But I do think that the formal considerations Arthur has been discussing don't provide the justification we need for thinking that at the level of principle that there'd be something wrong with the kind of international model I'm suggesting. My final point is a full-hearted endorsement of the main theme as I understand it of Arthur's project here which is to detach the ethic to detach the ethics of war considered at the level of ordinary interpersonal morality from the ethics of war considered as a species of politics this has been implicit in his dismissal of an individual ethic of honor in the case of perfidy and in his argument yesterday for impunity and distinction in the case of distinction and impunity i agree with arthur that thinking about the issues from the perspective of interpersonal morality brings confusion more than clarity, makes complex what should be simple and what in the context of war needs to be simple, namely the protection of civilians. Individual morality is complicated with our webs of complicity and our complex causal chains. Trying to tie the institutional form of war's ethics to the complexity of the individual level risks the little progress the international system has made. And trying to defend the institution's bright-line rules as second-best approximations of individual morality invites efforts by individuals to collapse the rules into situation-specific judgments. That way, disaster lies. I think Arthur shows us two ways to draw the distinction between political morality and individual morality. The first is between collective concerns, essentially collective concerns, and individual concerns. And the second is between a certain kind of ethical realism and a kind of utopian idealism. I think both aspects are at work in Arthur's argument in favor of the former against the latter. Take peace, its protection and restoration. Peace is the goal of the laws of war in Arthur's argument. Peace is not an individual state, it is a collective state in which a duly constituted authority is in place to adjudicate conflicts among individuals so that all might live ideally in harmony and reciprocity and at worst in the absence of violence. It is a state of law. Its good is essentially collective, whether we conceive it as a kingdom of ends or as democratic citizenship. Its value plays out over time and over the population as a community develops common norms and objective institutions to maintain its ethical character over time. I note that the idea of a political order enabling conditions of equal freedom is a powerful theme in Arthur's work, and I simply want to highlight how distinctive a view it is and how useful I think it is to bring it to bear on the ethics of war." Individual morality, it seems to me, is interested in peace only insofar as it involves an absence of immediate aggressive threats to persons and the things they care about or need. David Roden, who is a philosopher on the individual side of morality, the morality of war, argues for a highly restrictive conception of self-defense. He asks us to imagine that some aggressor comes to live in your house, imposing certain new rules on the house and refusing to leave, but not gratuitously harming you or your family, even over time you could try to subdue this interloper, but doing so imposes risks of harm or death on your children and your neighbors. Given that lives are at stake against a much more abstract value of autonomy, Roden concludes that morality forbids defense of your home in these cases. How dare you think about sacrificing the life of your child, risking the life of your child, simply to be master of your own house? Only if your life or the lives of those we love are threatened are you permitted to try to subdue or kill your aggressor? It seems to me plausible that individual morality speaks in these terms. The good of life demands very great sacrifices from us to protect it in restricting our ability to secure things we're nonetheless right to want. I think the flaw in Rodin's example is elsewhere. It's that it sees politics as the moral case writ large. I think it's as much a fixed element of moral judgment that we are not individually entitled to kill except in direct self-defense is that we are permitted to kill or use other means of violence to protect our ability to have the political community we want to have, even if the alternative to fighting is not death, but only collective subordination. Maybe there are limits. Maybe we could not justifiably resist an invasion by Canada seeking to impose single-payer health care on parliamentary democracy. But that may be a limiting case. The collective state of peace, in other words, cannot be decomposed into individual statutes and into individual statuses. We will misunderstand the value of political freedom if we do that. As I say, Arthur's model of ethics for wrongdoers represents a certain kind of realism, not utopianism. By realism, I don't mean what is sometimes called Kriegsraison, or reasons of war, which were said to justify departures from the law of war. By realism, I mean that Arthur takes as his starting point a historically situated ethical conception of conflict one situated in this case as a culmination of the Hague, Geneva, and UN conventions and treaties. While the avoidance of armed conflict is a goal of the system, it makes room for a great deal of war and other forms of political violence, including revolutionary violence, what the additional protocols called Wars of National Liberation. Arthur's argument makes clear that he does not aim in the least to justify war, but he is developing a model of political morality that takes its existence in some limited form as a fixed point. I mentioned before a risk of a certain model of interpersonal moral analysis, that it threatens central limits on war. But there's also a risk in a utopian model that sets itself categorically against war. It will have nothing to say to our politics or to soldiers who aim to fight in compliance in bellow rules that they can see as having ethical value within war. Its utopianism comes at the price of any critical purchase. What Arthur has delivered instead is a model of ethical reflection on war that can engage in terms both idealistic and realistic with our political moment. I'll leave it at that. I think I was supposed to emphasize the last sentence more.
2: Well, it's been a real pleasure to be a part of this conversation um, and glad to have a chance to talk to you all again today. Um, so uh, yesterday I uh, promised to return to a final critique, um, and I plan to make good on that promise today, um, and that is to focus on um, a concern that, that Chris also has just raised, that is that it's not entirely clear what Arthur's position is on the what he calls the voluntary law of nations or what today we generally call international law. So I'm going to focus on that today. Um, there are points at which uh, Arthur's argument um, seems to be quite skeptical of international law. He seems to embrace the view that no authority can be supreme over the state uh, not another state and not, it seems, an international organization or international law. Arthur argues, for example, that a key reason that soldiers who fight aggressive wars are immune from prosecution is that putting them on trial would involve the subordination of one nation's legal order by another. He explains, quote, one nation cannot put another's combatants on trial because it does not have the right to preempt another nation's legal order and its oversight of the military. The aggressor's legal system, he goes on to explain, cannot generate novel moral permissions or legal permissions that bind the defender's legal system. And then, therefore, it likewise cannot impose obligations on the aggressor's combatants, and thus, quote, it cannot punish them for violating those obligations. But why not? Take the crime of aggression, which was the centerpiece in the Nuremberg trials, at which Shawcross spoke um, in those lines quoted by Arthur at the opening of his first lecture. The crime of aggression is a crime of waging an illegal aggressive war. A true, the modern-day Rome statute that creates the international criminal court or ICC. Grants jurisdiction exclusively with regard to those who plan uh, and execute the aggressive war. But as Chris uh, just noted, that choice is really just a prudential one. It's not, it's not essential to the ICC. It was really a choice that was made uh, in order to limit the scope of the statute. But there's nothing essential about the statute that requires it. It's necessarily not necessarily inherent to the crime um, uh, or the capacity of states to choose to grant jurisdiction over the crime to an international forum. They could, in theory, do so. Indeed, the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction to prosecute several violations of international humanitarian law, and it gains that jurisdiction by virtue of states' consent to that jurisdiction through acceptance of the Rome statute that creates the ICC. I would argue that the creation of the ICC is the exercise of authority of states, not an infringement of it. By agreeing to create the court and grant it jurisdiction— the states are better able to effectively enforce key international legal principles to which they're committed. Now, I think, but I may be mistaken, and I invite Arthur to say more about this, that he may reject this account. Uh, and uh, and in this respect, Arthur's argument appears not, too, not altogether different from a view of international criminal law now most recently and famously associated with John Bolton. I'm trying to be provocative here. I assume this is going to... Uh, elicit a response. (laughs) So John Bolton has argued that the International Criminal Court is impermissibly exercising authority over the United States by investigating allegations that the United States is engaged in torture in Afghanistan. Bolton claims that the ICC's investigation is is an affront to U.S. sovereignty because it claims the right to assert ICC authority over the United States. And, indeed, he has threatened sanctions against the court, um, against its personnel, against the judges, against any state that cooperates with the International Criminal Court in this investigation. In fact, threats that were made good uh, last week when uh, the U.S. withdrew a U.S. visa from the prosecutor at the ICC, making it hard to see how she's going to fulfill her obligation to actually report at the U.N. in the United States. Um, So so has been uh, very aggressive in this view. Now, I would argue that Bolton is wrong. Uh, the ICC has jurisdiction over the United States um, and the alleged violations of international humanitarian law in Afghanistan by the United States because Afghanistan is a party to the Rome Statute. The Rome Statute's jurisdiction extends to acts by a state party and acts that take place on the territory of a state party. So because Afghanistan is a state party, and the acts allegedly took place on the territory of Afghanistan, therefore the jurisdiction extends to those acts and therefore to the citizens of a state that's not party to the ICC, but they committed their crimes on the territory of a state that is party to the ICC. So U.S. persons are thus subject to the jurisdiction of the ICC because the violations took place on the territory of a state party. Now in some sense, I suppose the investigation of the United States by the ICC is the subordination of the U.S. legal order, not so much to the ICC, but maybe to Afghanistan, to the Afghan legal order, because a court gains jurisdiction over the United States by virtue of Afghanistan's decision to accept the jurisdiction of the Rome Statute, and with it, the ICC's jurisdiction on its territory, by virtue of which the ICC gets jurisdiction over the United States. Uh, But the United States knowingly took its actions on Afghan territory. Uh, Ordinarily, we assume that states have the right to regulate the conduct of nationals of other states on their own territory, except in situations where they've agreed not to do so. Now, Arthur might have a stronger argument when it comes to domestic statutes that permit the exercise of universal jurisdiction over war crimes, which, again, uh, Chris has also briefly mentioned. Nearly every state that's party to the Rome Statute has incorporated the crimes into their own domestic law. So they've criminalized all the crimes that can be prosecuted at the ICC. They've done that to take advantage of what's called the complementarity provision. So the ICC will only take jurisdiction over a case if the state itself has not prosecuted or at least investigated the crime. And so all the states that are party to the Rome Statute have incorporated the criminal uh, prohibitions in their own statutes. Uh, in their domestic statutes so they can prosecute them domestically. And in many cases, they provide for universal jurisdiction over those crimes. Uh, Now, uh, notably, uh, most recently, the only prosecutions thus far for the war crimes in Syria um, have taken place through precisely these kinds of domestic statutes. Sweden and Germany have prosecuted a number of people for committing war crimes in Syria. Indeed, Germany um, has set up a special war crimes unit to prosecute international crimes, and in two years alone has received 4,000 tips of potential war crimes and crimes against humanity, most of them concerning crimes in Syria. Similarly, a court in Austria has convicted a Palestinian man who sought asylum uh, of war crimes for shooting soldiers or to combat following a battle in the city of Homs. So would Arthur consider these impermissible assertions of authority uh, uh, of the prosecuting state? At least in parts, uh, it seems so. But that would then rob the international community of one of its, of its most powerful tools that it has to address atrocities and bring uh, those guilty of them to justice. Now, I think the better explanation for immunity from prosecution of combatants acting on behalf of states that fight consistent with the Bella rules is this. Members of states' armed forces are immunized from prosecution, even in an unjust war, because states have voluntarily consented to rules that provide for such immunity. States that are party to the Geneva Conventions agree to a range of rules that regulate their conduct in war, and they grant to one another, immunity from prosecution for members of the armed forces that follow those rules. Now, the objection to this view, not necessarily Arthur's, but one that he summarizes in the written text, is that we do not ordinarily think that states have anything like this kind of power, the power, as it were, to permit their innocent citizens serving in the armed forces to be murdered by an aggressor. But I think that's the wrong way to think about it. The state is agreeing to immunize the person who does the killing in return for the other side doing the same. That's not the same thing as allowing murder, though admittedly it might have the same effect, in the way that requiring evidence established, quote, beyond a reasonable doubt, that a person committed murder might effectively allow a person who succeeds in covering up the crime to kill without penalty. That this is a better view is reflected in the fact that a combatant that is a member of armed forces of a state that has not ratified the Geneva Conventions would not be immune from prosecution, regardless of whether they were fighting a just or an unjust war. Uh, That state neither gives nor receives immunity. Now, of course, no such state exists because every state has chosen to be party to the Geneva Conventions, but that doesn't mean that a state uh, couldn't exist that was not party. In short, it's not clear where Arthur stands on what is perhaps the most foundational principle of international law, that states have the capacity to voluntarily agree to be bound in the future, allowing themselves in the process uh, to further their best long-term interests, even at the price of short-term constraints. I hope that Arthur will say more about the proper way to understand international law and international institutions in his framework. Now, My final point is a simple observation, not just about Arthur's work, but about the body of work of which it's a part that I have uh, furiously uh, worked to familiarize myself with in the, in the last several weeks. As I read this body of work on the morality uh, and the moral foundations of war, um, I gained to appreciate the effort that was being made to try and ground the rules that international lawyers often take at face value. I thought that incredibly valuable and, and enjoyed reading all of this work. But I found it notable that moral philosophers spend so much time focused on rules that govern conflicts between states, what international lawyers call international (coughs) armed conflicts, or IACs. Um, These rules are well settled. Uh, I don't think they're going to change anytime soon. Uh, They're also nearly, if not entirely, obsolete. Uh, That's because the prohibition on war between states has been remarkably successful in nearly eliminating the international armed conflicts to which these rules apply. Indeed, it's one of the great ironies that the four Geneva Conventions came into being just in time for them to be largely irrelevant. All this doesn't mean that it's not permissible or valuable to critique the rules, of course, but it does mean the audience and the effect of the work will be more limited. Where international lawyers like me could really use the help of moral philosophers is in an adjacent area of the law, the law governing non-international armed conflicts, including transnational non-international armed conflicts. I know it sounds like an oxymoron, but it is a category. Um, These armed conflicts between states and organized armed groups and between organized armed groups themselves have skyrocketed in the same period that international armed conflicts have become uh, largely extinct. Syria, Yemen, Iraq, Somalia, Sudan, Ukraine, Libya, and Mali, to name just a few, have active non-international armed conflicts, many of them involving states. The rules governing these conflicts are radically underdeveloped. The only provision of the Geneva Conventions that formally apply to these conflicts is the so-called Common Article 3, called Common Article 3 because it's common to all four of the Geneva Conventions. It's a single article out of a very long set of conventions. That article is brief. It offers very little guidance. Additional Protocol 2, which was created in the 70s to elaborate rules for non-international armed conflicts, has helped clarify matters but has not been accepted by many of the states that are most involved in non-international armed conflicts, including the United States. So this leaves a number of legal and moral questions highly contested. When should a civilian who assists the war effort be immune from targeting? And when should that civilian no longer be entitled to that protection? Is the banker who was a banker in town before the Islamic State arrived and continues to serve as the banker now for the Islamic State Uh, now a legitimate target? What about the truck driver delivering fuel? The sex slave? What about voluntary human shields who use the principles of distinction and proportionality to protect combatants? What obligations should states have for the action of non-state actor groups that they finance, arm, or advise? If non-state actor groups pose a threat to a state outside the one in which the group is located, should that threatened state be able to act against the group even if the territorial state refuses to consent, this is the famous unwilling and unable uh, theory. And if territorial, if the territorial state refuses to consent, is that is a state that takes action against an organized armed group in an armed conflict with the territorial state, even though it's not using in, a, in an armed conflict with that state, even though it's not using force against the state's own forces. I could go on. There are many more questions like this. These are all questions that are deeply contested and on which moral philosophers could, and I hope will, um, and I hope Arthur will, uh, continue to have a valuable impact. So with that, I will close and look forward to the rest of the conversation.
3: Okay, let me uh, preface my remarks by saying that uh, my comments are going to be primarily concerned with morality rather than with international law, but they 're relevant to arthur 's project because, as I see it arthur 's project, is to uh, try to identify the moral basis for uh, the law as we have it or the law as it ideally ought to be and what I want to do today is to make a case for uh, a much longer list of just causes for war than Arthur recognizes so i'm i 'm going to be one of the uh, one of these uh, Reactionary classical just war theorists, he cites in his text, um, who has, a, who has a, a, a longer list. Though I'm, I'm not, I, I'm certainly not interested in defending punishment as a, a just aim of war, or, or some of the other aims that the traditional just war theorists or classical just war theorists at, attempted to justify. But I do think that some of the, some there are other categories of war besides national self-defense or defense of another state that has been attacked. Um, uh, uh, are permissible. So let me begin with humanitarian intervention. Um, Arthur says that humanitarian intervention is normally impermissible, and that's because it initiates a condition in which force decides. He cites one exception, uh, that is when conditions of barbarism prevail, and by barbarism he means... uh, Conditions of, for example, institutional slavery, crimes against humanity, genocide. And when those conditions prevail, what he says is there is, in fact, no law. So that's what he means by barbarism. So in those cases, uh, humanitarian intervention does not substitute force for law because law doesn't exist. Uh, In in effect, um, a situation in which force decides already exists in the absence of law there. But he says that in other conditions, such as despotism, there is law and there is domestic peace, even if there is systematic injustice and repression that includes violence against individuals. In these conditions, unless they rise to the the level of barbarism, humanitarian intervention is impermissible. And that's partly because it involves... um, the initiation of a condition in which force decides, and partly because um, humanitarian intervention involves the imposition of one legal order on another. Now, I want to uh, defend humanitarian intervention in some of these conditions that don't rise to the level of barbarism. So, start with. Um, third-party defense of another or other defense at the individual level, uh, among individuals. Suppose, for example, that um, this is all occurring within one legal order. Uh, An agent of the secret police uh, is about to kill a human rights activist within the society uh, in order To prevent this human rights activist from exposing some of the human rights abuses of the regime which this agent of the police uh, represents. In this case, the police agent has already uh, created a condition in which force decides. That is, unless Somebody uses force against the agent of the secret police. The secret police agent is going to kill this innocent person. I'm stipulating this person is innocent. So by engaging in other defense, a third party defender wouldn't violate the prohibition against creating a condition in which force prevails. Already is that condition. And all of these people are citizens of the same country, so there's no question of uh, imposition of one legal order on another. So I think the, my, my intuition, strong intuition, is that the citizen uh, may permissibly kill the police agent to prevent the police agent from wrongly killing the human rights activist. Um, but notice now the, the, the um, agent of secret police is actually an agent of the state. So in a way, the, the aggressor in this case is the state. I think that if a private citizen within that state may permissibly kill the uh, 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 agent of the secret police, another state should have the same permission as well. I don't don't see why if an agent of another state were were to conduct the defense of this innocent person rather than a citizen of this state, that would make all the difference. But Arthur says, no, another state may not intervene to prevent this murder. But now I'm going to give you another hypothetical case. Um, Suppose that that, that, that the third party who can prevent the murder of the human rights activist by the agent of the secret police is actually the ambassador from another country. There he is walking down the dark alley and finds the secret police agent about to kill the human rights activist. The only way the ambassador can prevent the killing is to kill the police agent. Well, I think it's entirely permissible for the um, uh, ambassador to to engage in third-party defense of the innocent person. I think, in fact, not only that he's permitted to do that, but he's morally required to defend this innocent person against wrongful attack by the secret police agent. And in particular, the, the, that, that obligation seems to me quite strong because the cost to the ambassador is not prohibited, prohibitive. That is, the, the most that can be done to, to the ambassador is that he will be um, expelled and replaced by another ambassador. But now, the ambassador is an agent as Arthur was at pains to tell us yesterday, of his own state and as an agent, therefore, of his own legal order. And this is particularly clear if he takes advantage of his diplomatic immunity to avoid sanctions for engaging in other defense. So in this respect, his status, his legal status, and perhaps his moral status, in Arthur's view, is exactly like that of a soldier of the state of which the ambassador is an agent. So why should it make a difference whether it's the ambassador who does this rather than a soldier of another state? Well, maybe you can see where I'm going. Let's, let's increase the numbers a bit. It's not just one human rights activist. It's a very large number of political dissidents who are now about to be harmed and killed by agents of the secret police. And we could let's suppose there are lots of diplomatic staff at the embassy who enjoy diplomatic immunity, and they could actually, by engaging in third party defense of these political dissidents, prevent the killing of hundreds or even thousands of these innocent people, thereby enabling them to escape. But to do that, they'd have to kill lots of agents of the of the secret police or maybe even of the military. Well, I think if we increase the numbers, that doesn't change the situation at all. I think if the my view is if a third-party citizen of the, the state is permitted to kill the the secret police agent, then the ambassador is permitted to kill the secret police agent. And if the ambassador is permitted to kill one secret police agent, then lots of embassy staff would be permitted to kill lots of secret police agents to defend lots and lots of innocent political dissidents in, in this other state. But if that's true, why can't soldiers of the of the state do the same thing after all they 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 are agents of the the state just as the embassy staff are so i don 't see any difference between humanitarian intervention and any of the previous cases I have cited um, and so I think in particular, if the effects of humanitarian intervention and the side effects and so on would be no worse than Um, the effects of large-scale other defense by the embassy staff. It just follows that humanitarian intervention is justified in this kind of case. And indeed, if soldiers could do the job in a way that would be more efficient and cause less harm than uh, would be caused by the embassy staff, then humanitarian intervention would be required rather than... (coughs) Individual actions of the embassy staff would be required by what I called the uh, the requirement of necessity when I was talking the other day or yesterday okay so that 's an argument for humanitarian intervention that is that has been crafted to try to suggest that arthur 's objections to humanitarian intervention um, are unsuccessful. You know, I start off with with something that he he should. Except, uh, I think. Now, there's another question I want to consider, and that is, uh, oh gosh, I'm I'm only a tiny way into my notes, and I'm already ten minutes into the talk. Oh God, um, civil war or or, or rebellion? So, um, consider a state in which. A poor majority group is systematically oppressed and exploited by a wealthy minority that controls the government, the judiciary, the police, and the army, and so on and so forth. Let's suppose the law itself is unjust and offers no protection to this uh, uh, oppressed majority. I suppose the majority um, uh, uh, have hitherto been deterred by fear of, of uh, uh, repression, use of force, and so on. So they've done nothing so far, but now they're considering um, the use of force in rebellion as a last resort. Uh, let's suppose that in this state, conditions fall short of barbarism. There is law. Uh, so if these people were to rise up, they would be initiating a condition in which Uh, force decides, Um, but they wouldn't be imposing an external uh, legal order because they're citizens of the state. I'm guessing that Arthur's view prohibits rebellion in these conditions precisely because it does initiate a condition in which force decides. So far, there's no use of force. The state is not violently repressing people, but there's this threat of force in the background but now let's imagine that the rebels do go ahead and begin a civil war. They begin fighting against the government. Now it seems to me that Arthur's view does permit external intervention on behalf of the rebels because an external intervening state would not be initiating a condition in which force, <coughs> pre- uh, force decides because that's already the the case. And what's more, it wouldn't be an instance of the imposition of one legal order on another because in the aftermath of the Civil War, the legal order is going to be determined by the major participants in the Civil War, namely the rebels. So it seems to me that Arthur's view does actually permit external intervention once a Civil War is in progress. It permits it, though, and quite appropriately, only on... uh, only in support of the just side in the civil war whichever that may be let's suppose that it's the the rebels as in the as in the example that i gave you may well be in this case that arthur's view is more permissive than international law is because at least it used to be the case that international law would permit external intervention in a civil war on the side of the state at the request of the state but prohibited intervention on behalf of uh, 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 an insurrectionary, or rebel uh, force, in in the state, it may well be that customary international law has changed. Now I don't really know that. So that customary international law might uh, uh, allow for external intervention if the state's response to a rebellion involves war crimes and so on, so that the justification for the external intervention, again, <coughs> excuse me, against the state would be humanitarian intervention. But let's return to um, what, what I think uh, Wal, um, uh, Arthur's view implies, and that is that external intervention on behalf of the just side, and in this case it's the, 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 the rebels, um, can be permissible. But it seems to me that if... He thinks that if his view implies that external intervention in support of the rebels is permissible once the civil war is in progress, it would be arbitrary for his view to say the rebels can't initiate this just rebellion. But I think it may have that implication for the reason that I gave, namely that if the rebels start this thing, they are uh, uh, initiating a condition in which force decides. But once they've done that, then others can intervene on their behalf. That seems to me to be an unstable position. But suppose it does permit, suppose Arthur's view does permit the rebels to initiate a a, a civil war in the conditions that I've described. If that's true, then again, it seems arbitrary to me for the view to prohibit humanitarian intervention before a civil war uh, erupts. If, in fact, the people would rebel if they could, but they can't because they're powerless, but would welcome an intervention and would join it if it were initiated from the outside. So I think in those conditions, really, Arthur's view ought to uh, endorse humanitarian intervention. Uh, how am I doing for time? I, I'm out of time. All right.
0: I, I can give you up to eight minutes.
3: Wow, that's that's unbelievably generous. All right, I, I hope it, I, I, I I'll take I'll take a I'll take a few more minutes. I won't take eight. Uh, <clears throat> I also think that what Arthur calls remedial war can be justified, and the justification again starts at the level of individual action. We imagine a case, um, <clears throat> for uh, 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 so, at the individual level. So, so here's here's a case. Imagine that. Um, I'm on a life support system, I need this life support system to survive, and without it I can survive for only a few days. Um, Now suppose there's another person who also needs a life support system and can't get it, comes and tries to take mine away. I engage in self-defense, I try to resist this person's effort to take away my life support system, but I'm defeated, I fail. I, I fall unconscious and the thief goes away with my life support system. I wake up sometime later, I've got only a short time to survive unless I get back the life support system. Um, there's no time for me to summon the police or, or, or the courts or whatever. Happily, I'm, I, I make a successful guess at where the thief is, and I go to where he is, and I fight him again to recover my life support system to save my life. Um, now, I think I'm perfectly justified in doing that. It's not self-defense anymore because I've lost the defensive phase of the thing, and he's gone away with my, my property. So in a way, this is no longer self-defense, even though I am trying to get back something that really is mine. But that's true in remedial war as well. So what I want to suggest is if we just increase the numbers on both sides, you know, a lot of people... <laughs> with their life support systems and a lot of thieves, and we, we, we make the thieves citizens of another state from the state in which all the victims uh, live, I think that makes no difference whatsoever. It's, it's irrelevant. The individual rights to, of recovery of things that are essential to people's survival um, have priority in this case. And so if you think of a remedial war that has something like the features of this individual case, then I think you've got another just cause for war. So I think there can be uh, just remedial wars, just as I think there can be uh, just and justifiable humanitarian interventions. Uh, there are some other cases. Um, I was going to get... But let's, let's skip them. Um, what I want to do now is to challenge – and, and here, I'll, here I'll stop. I want to challenge Arthur's idea that it's really important or it's just prohibited to introduce a condition in which uh, a, a dispute is decided by force. Um, let's, let's take another instance of my life support system case. In this case, imagine that there's a person on the life support system who's disabled and can't resist force or whatever. We imagine this person is temporarily disconnected from her life support system, is in another room. Thief who wants the life support system comes in and just walks off or is going to just walk off with the life support system. Now, I appear, um, the, the disabled person can do nothing to, to, to stop the theft, in fact, doesn't even know anything about it. I appear and can prevent the theft of the life support system and therefore prevent the death of the disabled person, but only by killing the, the thief. That, I'm just stipulating it's the only way I can do it. Again, I can't call the police, nothing like this. You know, there's no time for any of that. Um, now, I believe, again, it's permissible for me to engage in uh, uh, other defense of this person. Um, when I do that, however, I am initiating the condition in which the matter is settled by force. Because the thief isn't using force, he's just walking away with this machine. Uh, the, 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 the person to whom it belongs is in another room so i don't consi- I mean I think it would be straining the language to say this is a use of force or violence by by the thief it's just theft it's not force or violence. so if I use force and violence to stop the thief i'm initiating this condition um, after all, I mean there could be settlement without resort to force by simply allowing the thief to walk away with the life support machine then, then, then there wouldn't have been any force or violence um, I think it's perfectly okay for me to – in fact, I think it's morally required for me to initiate the condition in which uh, force decides. And I think also, contrary to what um, Arthur tends to say in in the talks, um, I would in fact be settling the dispute on its merits because I'd be doing the right thing. So I'd be introducing the use of force – but I would be actually achieving a settlement on the merits because I would be, I would be bringing about the right conclusion. Um, I wanted to revisit the uh, Pursuer case that I introduced yesterday, into which Arthur responded. Maybe that'll come up, and I'll, I'll do that later, but I'll stop here. Thank you for letting me go.
0: We'll give uh, Arthur Ripstein um, the podium now, who will have 20 minutes. Uh, to respond to as much as he's able to in today's comments, and then we'll open it up for general discussion. So uh, save your questions, and, um, and uh, we'll take it from there.
4: Um, well, so there was a lot of material in the three commentaries. I'm grateful to all of my commentators. As I said yesterday, I've learned a lot from each of them in the past, I've learned even more in the past few days, and there's so much material that I can't realistically try and get through all of it in the 20 minutes allotted me, but I will do so anyway. Okay, so Chris identifies three challenges to my view. He starts by wondering what the moral force is of saying that something is a category error. And in doing this, he makes a move that is, as it were, familiar in a lot of critiques of Kantian views, The basic question is, well, suppose that there's something incoherent about doing this. Well, so what? I'm going to achieve something that's worthwhile. Why isn't that good enough? Why is it that we care about the fact that there's something contradictory or incoherent or violating some fundamental distinction? Forget about distinctions. Let's just get the good result. Now, Kant has, as I explained yesterday and the day before, a philosophy that makes peace its central moral concept. Kant, at the end of his Doctrine of Right, says that peace is not merely a good, but it is the final end of the Doctrine of Right within the limits of reason. It's the final end, and I want to draw attention to the difference between two ways in which we might think about something as an end and two ways about which we might, in which we might think about peace in particular as an end. On the one hand, you can think of an end as something that is, as it were, radically external To the means that you use in pursuit of it. And so, for example, when the United States decided they wanted to put human beings on the moon, getting to the moon, that's just an end, and then what you do in order to achieve it, that's just a technical question. There's a different way of thinking about an end, and that's the way in which I think we think about ends when we think about morality in general, And that is of thinking of an end not merely as this thing that's external, but something that is instead fundamental to the way in which we think about the nature of an activity at all. We think of things as having what Aristotle would have called a final end, which is also what he calls a formal end. That is, the end of peace actually doesn't merely say, kill everyone if that will get you to peace, That's kind of seeing the achievement of peace as something you can do through what Kant calls the vast graveyard of mankind. It's rather that in seeing it as the final end, we see it also as limiting the means that are available to us. That the only way that you can pursue peace is by pursuing peace in a way that is consistent with honoring the value of peace. This is the fundamental idea, I think, behind pretty much all of morality, but certainly around the morality of right, the morality of ideas of enforcement. Towards the end of his comments, Chris drew attention to and praised me for what he called the realism of my view, and I, I'm happy to welcome the term realism. The thing on which he was focused was the way in which I distinguish between the questions of morality that apply in the context of political life, in the context not merely of politics, not merely of war, but also in the context of legal institutions, and distinguish that from interpersonal morality. And I want to just draw your attention to the way in which those two differ in a fundamental way. And perhaps the easiest way to do so is by drawing your attention to a fundamental feature of the concept of a right, something that those of you who are parents, are very familiar with. Because one of the things that you need to teach your children is that they have rights that they're cert- and that other people have rights and that there are certain things you must not do because they are inconsistent with the rights of others and that there are certain things that others must not do to you or that you can demand of others because of the rights that you have. In addition to that morality of right, the thing that's hard about being a parent is teaching your children that also there are some occasions on which they should not stand on their rights. There's more to morality than the morality of right, but the morality of right is the starting point. And it has to be understood in terms of an idea of interpersonal interaction, an idea on which no person is subordinate to the choice of another when we think about relations between nations, we need to think in similar terms. The fact that a nation is entitled to defend itself doesn't end the moral question about it, but it has to be the first moral question. The question of whether one nation is entitled to come to the assistance of another is again a question of right, after which there's a further question about whether it is appropriate to exercise the right on this particular occasion. But we have to, before we get to the question of whether to exercise the right, we have to understand the structure of right. And the structure of right is all about these distinctions. And so if we think about the nature of peace, the wrong of perfidy being the violation of this distinction by repudiating the difference between peace and war, that's using means that are inconsistent with the very point of establishing rightful relations between human beings, rightful relations in which human beings can live together under laws rather than subject to unilateral assertions of force by others. And so I want to say the same thing when we think about the principle of distinction, distinguishing between combatants and civilians. Of course, it may be more effective, and it may be the case that you will end up saving more lives, that fewer civilians will die, if you target this group of civilians. But one of the things that morality always teaches us is that the ends don't always justify the means and that there are some things that you may not do, even if you're doing them, will stop other people from doing terrible things. And that's the structure, that's the general form of the structure that I'm working with throughout the lectures. And so there are means that can't be used And those means are identified through this final end, through this idea of the possibility of people living together in peace, living together, that is, under common rules articulated from a common standpoint. And if we think about it in that way, then we have a way of understanding why these distinctions matter. Now, Chris also drew attention to the fact that I seemed to him unduly dismissive of Various other grounds that might be given for the prohibition of perfidy, which he mentioned on Tuesday, or for the principle of distinction, which was discussed yesterday, which I discussed yesterday, and which he mentioned today. And I didn't mean to say that those other grounds aren't additional reasons. The way that Chris put it, I'm not going to get his exact words right, but the basic thought was that these moral ideas need all the help they can get. And I couldn't agree more. My claim is not that we should not encourage people to act out of a sense of honor. My claim is not that we should not provide people with incentives to do the right thing. My claim was that in order to understand why it is wrong to commit perfidy, why it is wrong to target civilians, we need this idea, this idea that what it is to be Fighting justly is to give up on certain kinds of means. Now, Chris, in relation to his first point, also made an ancillary point. He said that he was skeptical about my claim that a war of aggression should be treated as a defective form of a war of self or other defense. And the question is, why are we thinking of it in these terms? Why don't we just think of it as what it is and so hold it to the standard that is appropriate to it as it is conceived by those carrying it out? And the answer there is that whenever someone goes to war in order to understand what they may and may not do, we have to understand them through moral concepts. The idea of moral concepts Determines how we can frame any kind of analysis of anything that anyone ever does. And if we think of it in those terms, we have to suppose that even those who are engaged in bare power grabs, acts of aggression, Jeff mentioned the Nazis many times, I mentioned Genghis Khan, these are not people who, although They may have asserted that they were fighting defensively. They did not believe they were fighting defensively. Nonetheless, in order to understand the way in which their conduct is subject to evaluation, we have no choice but to suppose that they, like everyone else, are acting under the idea of right, which is to say that they are supposing that they are establishing a right by what they do. And if they think that they are engaged in an act establishing a right, then we have to ask what act establishing a right could be going on here. And the only one available is defending an existing right. And so we have to understand all of the parts in terms of that. Chris also worried that I was skeptical about international law. And he mentioned the Rome Statute. I think in addressing that part of Chris's Argument. I will address it jointly with the corresponding part of Ona's argument. I'm not at all skeptical of international law. And one of the things that I, I should have been clearer about is that my concern in these two lectures was with how things stand between two nations, between aggressor and defender, and was not as such concerned directly with the question of whether there could be some other body, a body of international law, that was superior to them. I think that nations are sovereign in the only sense that is of any moral interest insofar as they are sovereign against each other, which is not to say that they are sovereign against the international legal order. And indeed, I think they can only fully enjoy their sovereignty within the context of an international legal order for, precise, for reasons that are formally parallel to the reasons in which individual human beings can only enjoy their rights if they, as people like to say in the 17th and 18th centuries, exit the state of nature and enter into a legal condition. If that's what they do, if that's what they have to do, then of course international law has a kind of superiority over them. But notice, international law requires two kinds of things. It requires, on the one hand, institutions, and it requires, on the other hand, doctrines. In order to understand how international law can have these things, there's a story about how it comes about, namely through the Voluntary Agreement of Nations. And Ono wondered whether I was opposed to that idea, I had in my discussion of Shawcross's view on Tuesday, suggested that he was critical of a certain understanding of what the voluntary law of nations could be. And that was, of course, because the voluntary law of nations that he was criticizing was the voluntary law of nations that on the one hand said, we've agreed to let both sides in a war kill the other's combatants, and also said, we've agreed that... No one is allowed to start an aggressive war. That's not a possible set of agreements. And my claim in drawing on uh, Shawcross's criticism was to draw attention to there are limits to what can be the content of a voluntary law of nations. And my thought is that the fundamental features of it have to be the recognition that Nations are juridical equals, that each of them is, as against each other nation, entitled to political independence and territorial integrity. That entitlement limits the way in which agreements between nations can take on content. It also means that because of that, when there is sufficient agreement among nations, you can have what Ona described as customary international law, which is, I note, importantly different from the voluntary law of nations, as Wolff and Vettel describe it, precisely because it binds everyone. Because what happens when you have enough nations, though it's not, there's no clear empirical point as to what counts as enough, but if enough nations of the world unite themselves in setting up institutions – then those institutions have a legal personality that is independent of the legal personality of each of the nations that authorize them. And that independent legal personality then has authority over things that particular nations might not have accepted. I don't actually think that the claim of the ICC to prosecute or to investigate, which is all that's happening right now, Torture committed in Afghanistan depends on the fact that Afghanistan is a signatory. If Afghanistan had not signed, it would still, it seems, have that kind of jurisdiction. But I am worried about the thought that this is because everyone has jurisdiction. I'm very suspicious of the idea, and this is, of course, the scholastic idea from the 15th and 16th century of universal jurisdiction that whenever there is a wrong in the world, it is so important that it be righted that anyone who's strong enough to do so is entitled to do so. I believe that to be the path to barbarism. Now, I want to say one more thing about customary international law and the power of states to bind themselves. The power of states to bind themselves is a lot like the power of individual human beings to bind themselves. It's fundamentally limited, and the way that it's limited is parallel to the way in which the ability of each of us as individual human beings has a limited ability to bind ourselves. And so, to use a classic example, you can't sell yourself into slavery. That exceeds your moral powers to do so. And in the same way, I think a nation couldn't agree to be enslaved by another nation. The the, class, the initial article by Alfred Verdross that introduced the idea of jus cogens, that is, peremptory, non derogable norms of international law, gave such examples as you couldn't have a treaty. That authorized slavery, you couldn't have a treaty that authorized mass murder, and you couldn't have a treaty that authorized the suspension of consular protections for a country's nationals when traveling abroad. You can't have that because you couldn't have a treaty in which a nation gave up its entitlement to be a legal order. I, I, was that the- six. six minutes? All right, six. Okay, non-international armed conflicts. I have lots to say about non-international armed conflicts. I think the basic thing to say about them, though, is that they don't make these rules obsolete because these rules apply in the clearest case in a war between aggressor and defender, and we can identify their formal structure by focusing on the case of a war between aggressor and defender. But for all that... They are rules that are organized around the thought of the importance of peace. But if that's right, then when there's a non-international armed conflict, or a NIAC, as Ona called it, what you have is a situation in which there's a breach of the peace and we need to conduct ourselves in a way that makes it possible to return to peace. How exactly we do that is complicated. One of the clearest cases where this comes up, the, third, the second additional protocol to the Geneva Conventions says that members of a non-state military organization are only participating in hostilities at the time at which they are actively participating and carrying weapons openly. This seems to give them this is why some nations have hesitated to ratify this, give them a kind of advantage because uniformed soldiers are always members, are always treated as combatants. These people get to switch back and forth. So, one question is how do we make sense of this? Part of the answer, of course, is that a nation's military, as I suggested yesterday, is the way in which it threatens another nation. And those who are And so it is always directly involved, at least in the threat. The fact that someone can, at their own initiative, become or not become part of the threat seems a little bit worrisome. At the same time, the overreaction to that can only be analyzed in the kinds of categories that I have suggested. All right, I have probably four minutes left, and so Jeff... You could probably run a mile in this time. I'm going to just quickly respond to a few of your comments. The basic distinction that I want to draw between barbarism and despotism, barbarism is a condition in which you have, as Kant puts it, force with neither freedom nor law. What you have in a condition of despotism, by contrast, is force and law but limited freedom. And I want to say that distinction matters because I want to say the possibility of people enjoying their rights together actually depends on there being institutions that make, apply, and enforce law in a way that enable each of us to be secure in our private claims as against each other. Now, Jeff gave a series of examples And one of the difficulties with the examples is they kept moving back and forth between examples of despotism and examples of barbarism in the sense in which I wanted to distinguish them. As a result of which, there were, in particular, the example of the Civil War or the rebellion, Jeff said, law offers no protection to the oppressed majority if that's what's going on, that's just barbarism because there is no protection. They're not capable of enjoying their rights. That one's easy. On the other hand, you change it to, well, there's a dissident here. I don't think that anyone can take it upon themselves to interfere with another nation's legal order even when there is a serious injustice taking place in that legal order. Now, there's lots more to be said about the particulars here, but I want to close because I have almost no time here by focusing on something that Jeff said in his example that was supposed to motivate the example of remedial war. Because what he said is, look, in this case, the person who is taking the life support system away isn't using force. They're doing something peacefully, and they're not using force. And so therefore, to stop them would be introducing a condition in which force decides. And this makes me realize that I was not sufficiently clear on the way in which I think about the morality governing the use of force. I think that the idea of enforcing a property right is part of the morality of force, whether force is actively used or not. I think that's why the police are allowed to stop a thief in progress. I think that's why the government is entitled to use force to take things back from people who wrongfully retain them. And because of that, I think that in these kinds of examples, what you get is an illicit use of force. I think that's also why we can say that there is something wrong. John Simmons has this example of a bloodless invasion. He says, just imagine, it, it's, a, it's kind of an example that seems oddly antiquated, although it's only four years old. The U.S. annexes a mile-wide strip of Mexico. That's what seems mildly antiquated about it. And they do so peacefully. What they do is they just bribe all of the officials to leave their offices, and they take over. The question is, is this force?" replacing law? And my answer is yes, of course it's force replacing law. Because what you're doing is you're taking legal officials and you are demanding that they give up on their role as legal officials. And rather than them doing what they are supposed to do, namely decide things in accordance with law, as determining a public standpoint to govern interactions between human beings, you're replacing it merely with something outside of that. And that is a use of force, which can be resisted with right. Thank you.
0: OK. Did the floor? I make it in time? It's pretty good, Arthur. I'm, I'm impressed. Yeah. You went a minute over. But uh, anyway, the floor is open for questions. Put your hands up, and I'll, I'll make a cue. We'll start with Hannah Ginsburg.
5: Okay, uh, great. Thanks, everyone. Is this on? I don't think... is. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I want to address the, the first issue which Chris raised um, about categorical arguments, uh, and I want to address uh, Arthur's response to it. So Chris basically said, why should we be concerned about making category mistakes? Uh, why should we be concerned about doing things which are inconsistent with distinctions that we've made? And Arthur responded both by emphasizing the importance of peace on a Kantian view and by pointing out that, on a Kantian view, peace isn't just an external uh, but a formal end, which means that it's the kind of end which limits the means. Uh, and so, Arthur, you repeated something that you've said a couple of times in the lectures, which is that somebody who engages, say, in perfidy, like false surrender, is uh, repudiating peace, uh, and because that person is using means that are inconsistent with peace. Um, but it seems to me that that still isn't enough. And that's partly because it seems that I can engage in perfidy and still not actually repudiate peace. I can be a fan of peace. I can <laughs> want there, I mean, I can want there to be means available uh, for, uh, for making peace possible... Um, But I can still think that a particular act of perfidy on my part will help bring peace about, uh, so that my use of perfidy, I might think, isn't, in this particular case, inconsistent with peace. So I'd like to suggest that the argument still needs some filling out, and I'd like to suggest that maybe it could be filled out by drawing on what I think is the animating idea of Kant's argument for the formula of universal law, which I think has to do with the wrongness of unfairness or of making an exception of oneself. So I think that your argument assumes that we, we all do want peace and we want the means for coming to peace to be available to us. And the problem with me, if I engage in perfidy, is that I'm kind of... Um, It's it's not that I don't want the means for peace to be available. I want them still to be available, uh, and I'm reasoning, perhaps correctly, that they won't stop being available through my act of perfidy. What's wrong with it is that I'm making an exception of myself because if everybody... I'm aware that if everybody did what I'm doing now, then those means of achieving peace wouldn't be available. Uh, so so that's what I'm suggesting is the, the 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 source of the wrongness. So I'm thinking of it as a kind of filling out or amplifying of your argument uh, in a way that's intended to address Chris's objection.
4: Thank you, Hannah. So uh, Chris has convinced me that I should not uh, refuse assistance when it's offered, but nonetheless, I'd just like to clarify i think that this is a way of supporting my argument but it's probably not a way of filling out my argument because one way of thinking about this is kant draws a distinction between internal and external freedom and the idea of making an exception of yourself is an idea about internal freedom it's an idea about the relation between you and the rule governing your conduct and you're trying to exempt yourself from a rule while wanting the rule to hold in general. And it all turns on what Kant calls a maxim, that is, a subjective principle of action of the general form, use these means in order to achieve this end. But when we think about external freedom, we seem to be concerned not with the question of subjective principles of action about the relation between this end and the means to it, we're actually concerned instead with the availability of certain kinds of means, that these means need to be consistent not with this or that particular end, but with, as Kant puts it, ends as such. And the idea of being consistent with ends as such is what's supposed to give us the principle of right in the individual case, But if you go to the international case, where you're supposing already that we're dealing with legal orders or proto-legal orders, then what you need is a principle that is consistent not with a particular end and not with peace as a substantive end, but rather one that is consistent with, we might say, public law as such, with the possibility of people living together under a system that constitutes a common standpoint for making, applying, and enforcing law. And that's the thing that requires that we bring things, that we subordinate all uses of force to law rather than subordinating law to uses of force. And that's the thing that I want to suggest is repudiated in the case of the commission of perfidy. Because what you're doing is you are saying, I mean, you're not saying it, but you are acting as if this distinction doesn't matter. But if this is the organizing distinction for the possibility, if this, another way of of putting it, Kant actually thinks that the principle of peace and the principle of publicity are the same principle. It's not that you're exempting yourself from it, It's that if you reject the principle of publicity, you are rejecting peace, even if you do it because you want peace. Because it's not a matter of what you want, it's rather that the only way we can have peaceful interaction is if we only authorize force under public law and we can't, if you have a plurality of legal systems, no legal system can do that to another, and so we have to have this limit built in. So, that, so, that, so, it's, so of course, whenever you do it, you will also be making an exception for yourself. But notice that the nation that commits perfidy, or the individual who commits perfidy, who has no commitment to peace, commits exactly the same wrong. It's not that they're saying, oh, I want peace in general, I want, but I'm going to make an exception for myself. It's that, like it or not, whether they want peace or not, the problem is they are repudiating the right way for human beings to interact, and so leaving only force as an option.
5: Okay,
3: thank you. Nico? Um, <laughs> So, Arthur, I was wondering why um, uh, a state at war can hold prisoners of war, why it isn't compelled to, why isn't it obligated just to release them on parole? Um, Because I take it that a nation at war can't round up civilians and hold them in prison until... Uh, the conflict is over. So if these people have laid down their arms and they've surrendered as soldiers, um, why is it that the state is allowed to hold them as prisoners of war?
4: So um, that's a very interesting question, which had not uh, kind of occurred to me in quite so stark a form before. I guess the basic thought is that they can be prevented from rejoining because when a prisoner of war is captured or surrenders, which is kind of an indirect form of capture, that prisoner has a peculiar kind of moral and legal status because that person is now not fighting and so is not part of the war and so has a kind of protected status But that person has not ordinarily become no longer (coughs) willing to fight. And so I take it that the reason a prisoner of war can be contained is merely to prevent the prisoner of war from rejoining the enemy forces because the war is continuing and because the prisoner of war might be expected to have some ongoing commitment to the side for which that prisoner was fighting. And so it's a matter of preventing them from rejoining. Now, there's a question about what's involved in doing that. I have a colleague in Toronto who grew up in Germany, and his parents insisted he get educated in the U.S. because his father had been a German prisoner of war in the Midwest during World War II and had the time of his life and he thought, this is where I want my kids to spend their young adulthood. And so he did his military service in the German army and then he went and moved to the U.S. because being contained as a German prisoner of war there was a pretty, well, cushy is probably overstating it, but it as prisoner of war settings go, it's not bad at all. But there, the point is, the restrictions on the way prisoners of war can be treated, I think, are all rest- the requirement that they're not currently part of the war, and the only thing you can do to restrict them is stop them from
3: rejoining. Um,
0: Floor is open for discussion. i Sorry? Yep. I just saw that. Just
6: a note on that last point. In fact, it was a practice um, during World War II in the United States to allow prisoners of war, if they were deep enough in the country that walking back to the enemy across water and so on <laughs> was not likely, that they could be farmed out to private uh, uh, farmers, for example, as agricultural laborers. So uh, there is a point to this question of must they be kept uh, behind stockades if this option is reasonable and available. But I wanted to actually ask a question that goes uh, to the difference between despotism and a state of anarchy. Uh, it seems to me the, the, another reason for um, allowing... Um, the anarchic uh, battle that is not available to the despotic situation is the problem of subjectivity on the part of the oppressed. Now, you might say that from the standpoint of a spectrum, the, the least justifiable case of resist, of rebellion was that of the American Revolution if all that was involved was taxes on packets of tea, uh, as compared with, Professor, with John Dugard's argument in South Africa that the persistent and, and r- truly draconian set of, of uh, conditions under which the black majority was kept justified rebellion. He made mm-hmm. that argument as an argument of public international law. Wouldn't that uh, be an issue? That is to say, the, the, the level of subjectivity in claiming the right of rebellion against despotism. That has nothing to do with the legal outcome, but just my sense of when is one allowed and when is one not allowed.
4: So, I think that's a very helpful way of thinking about it, because one of the things that a legal, one of the problems that a legal order solves is a problem about judgment, the way that I put it both yesterday and today, is you have to have a common standpoint from which rules are made, applied, and enforced. And one of the reasons that you have to have that is that the available concepts are partially indeterminate and they need to be made more determinate. But, of course, they can't be made fully determinate in legal doctrine in advance, and so part of what you have to do in order to establish legal order is establish a system of offices that basically say, this is the person who gets to decide about this question on these kinds of grounds. This is a question for the jury. This is a question of law for the judge, but it's a question of law for the judge. doesn't mean the judge just looks it up. The judge, that's why we call them judges, needs to exercise judgment in doing it. But you have a system in which all of these things are done. Now, this is important for understanding legality, but I think it... as your question indicates, it also (laughs) sheds an interesting light on questions of revolution because, of course, the kinds of things that are despotic in existing legal regimes, on a Kantian view, no legal regime is entirely adequate to the idea of a system of equal freedom under law, are questions that, about which reasonable people might disagree As a result of which, part of the reason we have to exit the state of nature and set up a legal system is to have someone whose job it is to decide on behalf of all of us. But that means that we can't unilaterally decide on our own, and that's just your point about subjectivity. Now, when you get to the condition of barbarism, where there are no institutions protecting the rights of some particular class of persons... I don't normally like using Nazi Germany examples, but Jeff's brought enough of them out that I think I'll make an exception. And if you think about Nazi Germany, there was a situation in which you had force with neither freedom or law for a proper subset of the population. I think if you think about slavery in various societies around the world historically, you have something similar. And in that situation, I think that those who are subject to it are entitled to use force against it and this this gives me a chance to usurp my time quota by responding to one of the things that Jeff said in that situation of course it's also the case that third parties can intervene on behalf of those people precisely because they are the ones who are acting in a way that is consistent with the creation of a legal order now One more thing that I should say about intervention while I'm abusing my role as answering questions is that when it comes to national defense or, or defense of another, in those kinds of cases, I think you're actually allowed to use force even when you don't have, as a matter of right, you're entitled to use force even when you have a limited prospect of success. And indeed, probably even if you have no prospect, of success. I think if you think about the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, they had no chance of winning against the Nazis. They were allowed to use defensive force anyway, because right doesn't, must not yield to wrong. On the other hand, when it comes to intervening to prevent something like barbarism, I think there, a third party intervening, first of all, I think, needs to have Omnilateral authorization through the kinds of international institutions to which ONA was drawing our attention, but also needs to have a realistic prospect of success. And I think one of the things that's so heart-wrenching when you look at calls for humanitarian intervention around the world is that one question is whether one nation can act unilaterally to do this. There was a debate about intervention in Syria and... Many people were saying that, oh, we have to do this because we can't just sit idly by. Scott and her co-author, sorry, Ona and her co-author Scott Shapiro wrote a very powerful op-ed explaining why this was the wrong way to think about it. But even if you had an international authorization for doing it, there's a question. What exactly are we expecting to accomplish here? And that is a pressing question in those cases, even with international authorization.
0: Question Have you heard, Dan?
7: Thanks very much. Oh, sorry. These lectures and talks have been really great, so thanks to everyone for participating. Um, This is really just an invitation to say a bit more about something that was uh, touched on yesterday that I was interested in and it was um, about the principle of proportionality and um, you sort of suggested as I understood it that well Jeff McMahon thinks of it in terms of well the, the principle of proportionality for him says something like the good effects of a use of force um, must outweigh like the bad effects and that you don't think of it quite in those terms That I didn't, I didn't understand what those terms were so yeah uh how should we think about proportionality uh, that understanding that principle in war and what kind of justification it should be given where it whether it also has something to do with um the importance of yeah returning to peace in that kind of way so thanks
4: okay, thank you so my thought at i I think I said this in passing on Tuesday. It was kind of a single sentence in the written text that I circulated to my commentators. I think that the reason that I don't treat proportionality as a freestanding principle is I actually think that it is, in a fundamental sense, subordinated to the principle of discrimination. And to say that it's subordinated to it is to say that rather than seeing it as a perfectly general principle about how to weigh good consequences against bad consequences. It's actually a principle about how to weigh combatants, or the the use of force against combatants, against the effects on civilians. And so if we think that civilians are not part of the war, the principle of proportionality is a principle (coughs) limiting the extent to which that which is part of the war can spill over onto that which is not part of the war. And so again, sticking with my architectonic structure where we start with the example of the defender, I want to say that the question of proportion... Of course, the defender is fighting for a just cause, but the question of proportionality is sufficiently downstream from the justice of the cause that it does not enter directly into the analysis of whether a particular act of war is proportionate or disproportionate. Because that's an inquiry that says, with respect to this proposed, say, attack on a particular. Military installation. The military installation is something that is a combatant or a combatant like thing. And then we ask, will this increase the scope of the war? That is, will this bring part of the war to people who are not properly part of it? And so that's why, on my interpretation, what the Geneva Conventions say, it focus, the Geneva Convention focuses on the direct military significance of the target. That's because something with direct military significance could be a lawful target, whether, and in the case of the defender, it is a lawful target. In the case of the aggressor, it's not, but it could be. If the principle of distinction applies to both sides then the principle of proportionality is a question about whether something that satisfies the principle of distinction and that is militarily necessary, that is, it's actually going to advance the military objective, whether it spreads the war too much further, whether it gets too much war in place. That's because... In the case of defensive war, targeting military installations is permissible, but you have to, even though that's already a limit on the means of defense that can be used, this is a further limit based on the side effect of it. Now this is a completely familiar way of thinking about side effects. There's a large literature in coming out of, of some passing remarks of Aquinas that then get developed in Catholic theology and eventually get named the Doctrine of Double Effect that focuses all on on the end that's being pursued and so on. But notice that when we think about the side effects of things, when someone's doing something, there's a question that we can ask about the way that they're doing it that doesn't actually attend to why they're doing it. And so, for example... We can say of someone that they're not driving carefully enough. And we can make that inquiry without actually knowing why they're driving, where they're driving, or anything of the sort. We can say, no, that's too dangerous. Now, when we get to proportionality in war, we're doing something slightly different, but not entirely different. Because we're bracketing the purposes, and we're saying, in the pursuit of this military objective, how much of side effect on what is non-military is permissible. There's something else that I want to say about proportionality, which I mentioned to my fellow panelists at dinner last night. Proportionality is <coughs> what, in a Kantian idiom, we would call a regulative principle, To say that it's a regulative principle is both to say that it is supposed to regulate something other than itself. It doesn't have a positive use. It doesn't have a constitutive use. It doesn't generate new permissions. But it's also a principle that is, by its nature, imprecise in its application. And if you look at the post-World War II constitutions, like in Germany and Canada and Israel and South Africa and India, those... uh, (laughs) There you have someone whose job it is to do the proportionality weighing. But when you get members of the military asked what counts as disproportionate force, there's a philosophy professor at the University of Haifa who got these sociologists who know how to design studies and they did this big study and they asked military leaders and military lawyers in multiple countries, would this count as disproportionate? and there was no pattern whatsoever to their answer. That doesn't mean proportionality doesn't matter. What it means is that we can't think of it in this algorithmic kind of way.
0: I, I guess I'd, I had myself on the list, but um, I, I think I I'd want to just kind of follow up on this issue um, and, and just invite you to say more about two things. One is um, you know, the, the basic... Um, uh, Ideally, you appealed to in articulating the principle of um, discrimination that you've just invoked again uh, between those who belong to the war and those who don't belong to the war. I think both Ona and Jeff, and probably Chris, uh, raised different versions of a question about how to understand this um, by you know appealing to specific examples. Ona was was worried about whether the the lawyers who are working in the Pentagon might belong to the war and. Um <clears throat> Jeff was worried about the uh, uh I think the physicists and um and uh and and I ha- I guess I have to sh- I share a, a worry that it's not a very um well defined uh um concept. Uh Jeff suggested it might be vague. And and I know you said something in response to this yesterday but I I just didn't get it. So okay. I'd like to hear well, okay. hear you say something a bit more about that. Uh, and then, just relating this to the issue that, that just came up, if I understood what you just said you 're thinking of proportionality as a principle that um, uh, that that kind of falls out of the principle of discrimination and it and it, and it says that you know the the war shouldn 't extend too far into the um, you know the, the class of people who don 't properly belong to the war in the first place, and I just don 't see any principle there i mean um what you know what, what is it, in, it it seems like the most you'd be entitled to say is any extension from th- those who belong to the war to those who don't should be ruled out if you're just appealing to the principle of distinction um but if that's not what you're saying you're allowing some extensions of um <clears throat> you know the combat into the class of people who don't properly belong to the war i don't i don't quite see how you could even i mean i could i could see why it would be Oh, now sorry. you're now you're taking the microphone away from me, but but I, I I mean I I guess it's an advantage of of your theory uh, that it would predict that if you were to to do um, a survey of people, you would get radically different answers because there is no principle there at all. Okay, so
4: uh, thank you. So I I'll take your questions in reverse order. The The claim is not that the principle of proportionality falls out of the principle of distinction. The claim was rather that the principle of proportionality presupposes the importance independently of the principle of distinction. And so that means that there is a problem whenever war has an effect on anyone other than those who are directly part of it. Now, as it turns out, war always has those kinds of effects, and so the thought is that we need something like a principle for analyzing the significance of those effects, because it can't be, again, let's take the case of the defensive war. It can't be that the defender is not entitled to engage in the use of defensive force because doing so might have a side effect or will have a side effect. And so there must be, on the one hand, the authorization to use defensive force, which is not subject to to prohibition merely through the fact of side effect. And at the same time, the presumption in favor of peace means that side effects need to be minimized. Now what we've got here then are two principles. They have a common source because they're both based on the fundamental idea of a world governed by peace rather than force. You're using defensive force to stop aggression, so to preserve peace, but you seem to be introducing more force than you should be. Or rather, it seems that we have these two things, and so they stand in a tension. And because they stand in a tension, they might be related to each other in different ways. Notice this is a completely familiar feature of practical thought more generally, if you think about how the different virtues fit together. And indeed, it's a particular familiar feature of theoretical reason. You want a theory that has explanatory power, and you want a theory which means that it's general, and you want a theory that's going to get all of the details. If you ever read... I was on a committee to hire a vice president, and search consultants always have these job ads. They say, someone who can look at the big picture and drill down into the details. And I said, this just sounds ridiculous. And they said, well, don't you want someone who can do that? I said, Everyone wants everyone who can do that, of course. But the point is, you have these two principles, and they seem to pull in opposite directions in particular cases. And so, to in the case of war, there are these two organizing ideas, neither of which we can give up on and at the same time neither of which can be fully satisfied while satisfying the other in the imperfect world in which we find ourselves. Now, what about the the question of who is and who is not part of the war? Ona gave the example of the lawyer, Jeff gave the example of The physicist and many people have given the example of the farmer who grows the crops and so on. There are all of these kinds of examples and the question is, how is it that we determine who is and is not part of the war? I have two things to say about that. The first and most important thing is that the point of my entire exercise is to identify the normative structure that is at issue and I believe that we begin to understand normative phenomena by looking at broad conceptual questions rather than by beginning with particulars. And I think that the thing that makes these cases hard is precisely the fact that we can see the pull of placing them in one category and we can see the pull of placing them in another category. And then the question is, well, what's the reasonable way To think about this, and this is where some of what Ona was saying earlier about customary international law and the development of doctrine is so fundamental. Because, of course, we need some way of making this explicit. And how do we do that? And the answer is that the presumption as we do it is that everyone is presumed not to be part of the war unless they are part of the war rather than I, in the written text, which I didn't get to yesterday because I didn't have enough time, I raised the, the example of ancient Sparta, where supposedly everyone was either fighting or preparing to fight all of the time. In that kind of th- that example, would show that you could, if it were true of ancient Sparta, have a society in which everyone was always part of the war. But modern societies are not like that. Probably ancient societies weren't like that. And so because of the priority of peace, we have to presume people to not be part of the war. And so we use clear designations. And so the initial one says wearing uniforms, and then additional protocol two says, or carrying arms openly. And the point is you get a structure built up so as to include those who are plainly part of the war, and in cases of ambiguity, leave them out. Now, what do we do with the nuclear physicist who is designing the weapon? I'm not entirely sure what to think about that. I think that if there is a situation in which it is morally permissible to target that person, doing so is not without a fundamental moral cost.
0: Okay. Um, Excellent. This brings to a close um, the conclusion, the the formal part of today's proceedings, and indeed uh, this year's Tanner Lectures. Um, Before we continue informal discussion over refreshments, um, um, I'd like to invite you to join me in thanking Arthur Ripstein, um, our Tanner Lecturer this year, as well as our distinguished Panel of uh, commentators, Jeff McMahon, Ona Hathaway, and Chris Kutz, for an exceptionally stimulating and um, uh, fun series of events.